Cleveland National Monument in Chicago, Illinois, with your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes. We welcome you to Live from the Pullman National Monument, our global cast magazine format talk radio show, where we discuss all things cultural economic development, i.e. tourism, and we hold informative conversations on the arts, music, business, and people. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, founder of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. Good day to you, my listening audience, and we thank you for joining us. Stay with us. Today's show is brought to you by the Pullman Messenger Magazine and Hughes-Peterson Publishing, partially underwritten by Choose Chicago, the premier tourism marketing agency in Chicago, Illinois. Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And, of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. And good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to another show. We are live from the Pullman National Monument, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, and we're very, very happy to be with you today and happy that you're on the other end. Um, Of course, you know this show is all about tourism. That is our focus. And we have established a tradition of coming on and talking about the Pullman National Monument first before we do anything. And that is because we are... Excuse me, a still we are still are new a still uh, new site under the Pullman, under the National Park Service, and because the site is unique, we still have to just to keep reinforcing uh, who we are and what we do. The Pullman National Monument is a unique site, unlike most national monuments, in that we are a thematic district. And so the themes for the Pullman National Monument are labor and architectural history. And that has a few tentacles, one of which is being one of the first planned communities in America. But that is who we are and what we do. And within the National Pullman National Monument, there are several entities. And so unlike most national monuments, that focus on one thing. Within the monument itself, there are several sites. We're still new and building upon that, but right now, we within the Pullman National Monument, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sites. One, of course, is the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. That site in particular is devoted to black labor history. 
And of course, that component of the Pullman history is came later, and, and so it really should be the other way around. But um, the first site that people visit when they come to the Pullman National Monument is the National Park Visitor Center. And right now, the National Park Visitor Center is coexisting in what we refer to as the Pullman Visitor Center, and they co they co uh, uh, reside in the building with it. And one of the entities, and one of our partners, called the Historic Pullman Foundation, who's probably been there longer than anybody, and their focus is the 19th century uh, history, uh, architectural history, and um, they focus on of course, the architecture. And so they have one of the big draw for that entity is they have something called the annual Pullman House Tour. And so uh, part of the community is what people refer to as frozen in time. And so th at that point, every year, there's an annual house tour where people come from all over the world uh, to the site to be able to visit and walk through the different houses and the housing types that are occupied by visitors, uh, by residents, but once a year, the visitors allow the Pullman, Historic Pullman Foundation the opportunity to have thousands of people walk, walk through their homes and see what the interior looks like. Then there is the signature building in the Pullman National Monument that we refer to as the Pullman Factory complex or the clock tower. And so that building is where uh, the trains were made uh, that were manufactured by the famous Pullman company, Pullman Rail Car Company. And so the remnants are there and they are vigorously working on that building in hopes that by next year uh, it will be ready for occupation and visitors will have an opportunity to see it in its full regalia. Then there, of course, is the Greenstone Church. And the Greenstone Church is, was built in 1881 and it was established as a Unitarian church for, for all people who lived in Pullman that were of different uh, religious persuasions, but the, the, the idea was to have one place of worship. And that was the paternal instinct of George Pullman, of course. Uh, it is famous because of the stones that it was made of. Um, I think they're green limestone, which is rare. And, of course, um, there is the... Um, in addition to the uh, Greenstone Church, there are, uh, those are the main sites. We have one restaurant, the Pullman Cafe. It is new. The rest of us have been there for a while. Um, but uh, it's a quite a interesting, quaint a place to, to have a, a meal. It's more like a sandwich shop, not a full-blown sit-down dinner uh, establishment. And, of course, the Hotel Florence, which was the hotel of the town when it was a town. Now it's a part of the community uh, that is named after George Pullman's daughter. Uh, and it is something to see. And that, too, is still currently under construction. And we hope that by next year that will be available as well. But I stress 
that right now there are probably four sites within the monument that people can actually go in to visit. But be that as it may, the Pullman National Monument is still open and we are in operation. It's just some some of the buildings, two or three of them, are in a work in progress. And the new park superintendent, who is uh, in place now, Kathy Snyder, Ranger Kathy Snyder, uh, is there. And she's doing a fabulous job. And so we are all supporting her and can't wait until all of the work is done so that we can take a look-see and see what they actually, what the National Park Service actually came up with. The the um, the arrangement now is, and I we we have a practice of uh, saying all of that because I, I guess it might have been maybe two or three months ago that there was this uh, national news article that went out and was picked up by all of the TV and the radio stations and the newspapers that said the Pullman National Monument was closed because of environmental issues. And of course, as the media frequently does, get it wrong in part. Uh, There is one building that is not able to be open because of some environmental issues there, but that is because that is where they were manufacturing railroad cars over 100 years ago, and so certainly there would be something in the ground uh, but not something that is contagious or harmful to people. But it is not in a position to be uh, dressed up and open up for people, for tourists to walk through. So I hope that uh, that information, oh, I did forget a couple of things. The, the sites that, all, not all of the sites, while we are all part of the National Park Service uh, Pullman National Monument. We are not operated, not all of us are operated by uh, the National Park Service. Some of the entities within the National Monument have uh, uh, agreements with the National Park Service. And so for that reason, some charge admission and some do not. We at the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum are not one of those sites who has a contractual agreement, and so we charge admission if and when uh, such an agreement is in place, then that will make it possible for us to make an admission free. But until then, um, we still charge admission uh, to the museum. So um, most of the places are listed on the internet, uh, and if you go to the our website, thepullmanportermuseum.com, we have information, limited information on each site, and you can find out more about them if you communicate with them directly. And I hope that this information has been valuable to you so that you'll be better informed about what's happening at the Pullman National Monument uh, and be able to share with people about us. We will take a short break and come back with our first guest. I I shouldn't say first guest. He is our contributing host, Mr. David A. Peterson, Jr., who is president of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Today's show is partially underwritten by United Auto Workers, Local 551, and Hughes-Peterson Publishing, Chicago, Illinois. Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, we have on live line our contributing co-host, Mr. David A. Peterson, Jr., who does a fabulous job often. We call upon him, and he's always prepared and comes with very interesting information that will inform us all. And today, he's going to talk about tourism statistics, and those are very important to us all. Well, they're important to us because we are a part of the tourism industry, and those numbers have meaning, and they mean something to us, but he is our tourism stat guru. <laughs> Mr. Peterson, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Hughes. You are more than welcome. So why don't you give us a little information about what's happening in the tourism industry uh, and sort of bring us up to snuff. We haven't had you on in a while. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We haven't. Um, I haven't been on a while and information has not changed too much since the last time I've been there. The only thing that has changed really is the the aggressiveness of, of how closer we are getting to Pullman National Monument's official visitor center. Uh, opening up. So with that, you know, with with the emphasis on tourism, we still have to go back to the original statistics, which are the fact that the Mayor Rahm Emanuel said on in 2012 that he'd like to have a certain number of uh, visitors coming through the city. So the anticipated amount that that's supposed to come by 2020 is 55 million, um, and as of last year, there have been 54 million documented tourists coming, domestic and international. So we're really excited about that. Um, we're excited about the continuing uh, influence, uh, influx of visitors coming through the national park because they're they're looking for the national park stamp. They're um, trying to put us on their list, etc. So we're having an influx of people coming by the monument. Um, so anticipated, according to the uh, economic engine for the Pullman National Monument done by the National Parks Conservation Association uh, and a few other uh, companies like uh, Chicago Neighborhood Initiatives, Historic Pullman Foundation, etc., have basically projected that there'll be an anticipated 300,000 extra people coming by the monument, um, you know, by the time the monument opens. So we're all excited and preparing for that. And, um, you know, we're really excited about what's to come. Um, so with that, it leaves us with great opportunity to prepare for that. Uh, and with that, you know, we're, we're doing a really good job of working with Department of Cultural Affairs to let people know about the, the different artistic uh, things coming soon. Uh, the Pullman Arts uh organization in Pullman um, has officially, you know, got the okay to break ground for their uh, Pullman lofts coming soon to the neighborhood. So that's going to bring a, a different environment of people here. Uh, a lot of a lot of living artists are going to be there. Um, there's an organization called the Beeman uh, Group. And, um, you know, a lot of different organizations that are still collectively trying to make sure that the neighborhood is ready for this infrastructure change, this paradigm shift that's about to take place in the neighborhood uh, and working with the museum as well as um, our, our community community development corporation, Randolph's Dream, we're excited about providing these opportunities uh, and access to this information for people in the neighborhood. 
Well, that's all very interesting and informative. I think that one of the things that happens when a community's infrastructure or environment begins to change because of a particular focus, like tourism, uh, there is a shift in, often a shift in population, often a shift in the mindset of the residents, and they don't always coincide, um, how should I say, in a good way. But it seems that what need what ha- what off the ones that are successful uh, are successful when each of the partners or participant entities within uh, an and a community like Pullman that has a shift with a strong focus on tourism is recognizing uh, the potential that is there in what we call cultural economic development, which is a part of or falls under the broader umbrella of tourism. But most people don't get that. But, but those who are successful in, that, in cultivating that direction do understand that that is what's happening. And so collectively, they operate as a unit. And in so doing, they can become successful. But it takes work. And so, you know, when people think about tourism, they often think about, they're just thinking about vacations. And, 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 and of course, that is part of it. But there's so much more, as you well know. But I just kind of wanted to share that for our listening audience, because I know you already know that. But I'm happy that we are part of a collective that uh, we have this vehicle, like live from the Pullman National Monument, that affords us the privilege of being able to have a tool, a vehicle that we can share information, not just uh, about tourism in Chicago, but it enables us to share more on a local level with with people who reside in the area, but also we it thrust us on the international or global stage as well. And so having a vehicle uh, or tool or access to a tool like a BBS radio and live from the Pullman National Monument uh, gives us a great advantage, and I'm very grateful for that. And grateful for you, someone like you, who uh, is, stays abreast uh, on the, the entities, the interests, and the opportunities that are there, uh, and particularly, frankly, for people of color. And we are grateful for that, and we are grateful for you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, just, just going back to the actual numbers of tourism, um, you know, I mean, we, we're seeing a big shift. You know, I mean, Illinois welcomed 110 million visitors from around the country in just 2016. Um, you know, and um, the, the governor actually announced uh, after the first quarter in 2017, there had been like a 7% increase in tourism revenue in Chicago and a 4% revenue increase downstate. You know, so since that administration took place, you know, there's been growth uh about 3% every year, just documenting the facts, you know. So visitors to Illinois invested about $35 billion in states uh, in the state's economy in 2016. In the last two years, Illinois has created 20,000 tourism-related jobs. 
Um, so these aren't necessarily the statistics that you'll see all of the time, um, but these are the statistics that are factual and actual. And, um, you know, we need to find our way to, to, to find our space in that. Um, and, and once again, you know, that's why it's so important that, you know, people continue to tune into this radio station. And at the very least, we put the information out for those who are interested. Uh, some of it may become redundant at certain times, but, you know, there are people who haven't tuned in at all. So we want to continue to keep this information current. Well, we we hope that you will be uh, frequent, be a frequent con contributor to make sure uh, that we pass that information on to our listening audience. Uh, those folks around the globe, they may or may not be interested, but the people in Chicago would. And so I'm hoping that you will continue to support us and to continue to respond to our <laughs> perhaps all too frequent request uh, to come on and share that information. But we greatly need it and greatly appreciate your response to our call. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, do you have any more information that you'd like to share with us? Uh, well, you know, if everyone could just continue to tune into the radio show uh, and, and like us on Facebook, live from the Pullman National Monument, um, so that, you know, you, you can continue to hear uh, and see about the good things going on in the neighborhood, you know. Um, we're really excited about all of these world-class opportunities, new partnerships with uh, people in the community as well as outside of the community and even the country um, that we're, we're, you know, are collectively helping us bring wonderful resources to, uh, to the neighborhood. So we would just encourage everyone to continue to tune in. Well, David Peterson, everybody, our contributing co-host to live from the Pullman National Monument, join me in, in thanking him for being our guest today, David A. Peterson, Jr., President of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. And we are going to take a break and come back with our next guest.
And welcome back, everyone. This and welcome to another edition of our newest segment, Spotlight on Culture. Uh, today's guest is Ramon Static. He is an artist and muralist. And if he can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Ramon grew up on the south side of Chicago, surrounded by urban art and public murals. He was classically trained at the American Academy of Art, and he is also co-founder of RK Designs, a graphic art and mural collective. Ramon, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, you are so welcome. Uh, I, I want to say, um, before we jump in, I read something about you that struck me as very interesting and actually quite rewarding. It was what they have as your artist statement. And I want to share that with our listening audience so they'll know who we, what a fine gentleman we have with us uh, on, okay. on, on Liveline today. And okay. I quote, it says, doctors save lives, police fight crime. And the artist dictates what we know as image, icon, and form. I live my life of observation and creation. I believe that being well-informed on a subject of your work and having an organized strategy produces a more intriguing work of art. I believe man has a right to choose his reality. In my reality, I have chosen my own destiny. Time and fate have confirmed that producing art is my positive contribution to society. The work I produce symbolizes and creates optimism for life in our industrial society. It also challenges the oversaturation of the mindless sexual and violent images in our pop culture. I put forth a passionate effort to produce art that has a spiritual, political, and urban aesthetic. That just blew my mind when I read that. It was something you you are so welcome. It's not you gave you allowed us to take a glimpse inside your soul, if you will. And right. in this day and age, it's, that is something I wish we had more of. And so I just, I just thought it was important to share with our listening audience who you are. Yes, you're an artist and a muralist, but, but, but the person. And so I wanted to, to share that with the listening audience. And again, welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's definitely good to be here. And um, the funny thing is that um, I actually wanted to uh, relabel that as being more of my manifesto than, uh, oh. than an artist statement. And I was going to actually like write a new artist statement that was a little bit more off. It was a little bit more brief, you know, and and and, and, and um, formal sounding the way uh, the way a normal uh, the way a mission statement would sound. Let's just say that. But um, that yeah, that that's more of a manifesto. That's like kind of a personal uh, virtue that I live by. Well, you can't get any better than that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but I can't make it shorter and more direct, though. As yeah. A, as a mission statement, you know, especially after reading or spending time reading um other 
other um, businesses and uh, entrepreneurs' mission statements also and seeing how they're direct um, with their mission right there. Because you know a mission statement is normally, um, what, uh, three three sentences to a paragraph long? You know, even uh, Walt Disney has a three-paragraph mission statement. And that's kind of <laughs> what um, makes is making me uh, read, is making me um, want to um, change the label of that to a manifesto. Okay. Because that's pretty much what it is, yeah. And a mission okay. statement is more simple and direct, yeah. Well, wonderful, wonderful. Thanks. So, well, uh, I, and let me say this. On this show, we focus on tourism. And okay. what that means is we delve into the multi-layers of the multi-billion with a V dollar industry of tourism. And under right. ordinary circumstances, when a person hears the term tourism, they automatically think of vacations. There is that, but there is also the many different tentacles under the label of tourism. And, and we, on this show, like to look at every aspect of it. And often uh, we look at the behavior and the motivation of tourists. What makes the tourist want to visit a certain area or site? And that, right. quite frankly, is what is and was our interest or reason for inviting you to be our guest today because the work that you do as a muralist, in our opinion, is indeed a motivator, not just for art enthusiasts, but, but for those who love to look at art and the impact that it can and does have on people. So now I'm going right. to be quiet and let you talk. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, um, you know what, to shoot from the hip, um, the work um, you know for from me, um, especially if you live out on the south side, uh, the west side, or around Chicago, is uh, my main my main uh, original intention behind producing these works of public art are to create community landmarks or landmarks for communities, especially communities that don't have landmarks. You know, especially for communities where um, people, people drive through there. Um, they, they may feel um, intimidated. They, they, they may feel scared because of some um, things they may have seen on the news, per se, where, where that doesn't mean that those areas is all bad either, right? Like, people live in these, Absolutely. In these areas. Absolutely. In all places in the world like that, as a matter of fact. You may hear these horror stories about what happens in certain cities and in certain countries around the world, but you get there... And, like, the first thing you don't see is, is people getting people in a firing squad. No, you see real life. You see people living their life right there. So, so in other words, there's kind of like a, 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 a dehumanizing, um, alienating stigma that, like, a, they're, they're like neighborhoods with uh, high crime rates have where people just make it seem as if or, 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 or people think of an idea that, um, that, that, that this has happened by itself overnight. You know, it just became a bad neighborhood overnight, and these people are just lazy and can't pull up their bootstraps, and 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 and, and that's that, and that's directed toward a whole um, neighborhood of people right there, right? Where in all reality, like like I said, like there's a lot of gray area in in those situations, right? So in other words, take for instance, you may have a neighborhood like Lawndale or Inglewood that may have um, these um, they may have a, a higher crime rate than most other parts of the city. That doesn't mean there aren't good people that don't live there. That doesn't mean that people that people that live there don't want a community landmark. Um, the, the, the drastically I noticed uh, as far as traveling around the city of Chicago is that specifically um, the areas that were missing community-based landmarks were the black neighborhoods. 
right? Um, for instance, um, you know, when I, when I go see my friends or go paint at Humboldt Park, um, you have the Puerto Rican flag hanging above the vision, right? Above the vision street off of Western. We go into a little village. Um, you have uh, the Mexican gateway um, above 26th Street, right? Um, hell, you can go into Boys Town. You have the gay flags um, on Halsey Street. Um, not gay, just like a gay flag pole on Halsey on Street. All those are community landmarks that identify those communities, right? They, they give you a brief idea of culturally um, what you're entering right there, right? Yes, so yes, in, in yes. So in regards to the, the black neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, I want people to enter enter the black neighborhood in the city of Chicago and not think and not and not just think it's just all murderers that live there. No, it's just productive people in society companies in the city companies neighborhoods, right? They live there. They have children to raise families there, right? In a sense it's to create more of a cultural identity for the neighborhood and more of a more of a pride for the area you live in right there. You know, so like um there have been there have been many areas that I've worked in Right, um, some areas that already have landmarks, um, others that don't. Right, and like, uh, and each of them have uh, specific needs um, per per project. Right, so like, um, no one area wants like wants the same stuff. Um, but then again, in, in some ways, a number of areas do kind of want the same stuff. In other words, everyone everyone wants to see heroes, right, and legends that look like them within their area right there, which is understandable. Right. So like you, you kind of have to I kind of have to cater to that as an artist and uh, find a, a great area in regards to what I know the people in the community want, what's in good context, what's in good taste, what will offend yes. them, what shouldn't go up there. Right. And uh, what will inspire people when they see it and also what will give you a, better, a brief idea as far as who, what the values of this community is, who the people are in this neighborhood and what do they stand for. Right. Like, everybody needs that. Every neighborhood needs that, you know, to at least give it some kind of driving force. Like, in other words, um, landmarks and public art um, defines, like, gave this country its cultural identity, right? From Mount Rushmore to the Statue of Liberty, you know, um, the, the, the Hollywood sign, you know, the, the gold statue in Washington Park, you know, the Father of Time statue um, piece in Washington Park. The list goes on, right? So, like, um, there's a lineage... Um, there's a legacy of public art that happens per generation and um, per um, per era in society, you know, per level of where um, of where technology is at in society, which which is another conversation in regards to how technology affects art and the production of art and, and, and how fast it gets pumped out, right, and, and, and the content of art. But um, that's that's pretty much my, my angle though, as far as um, why a lot of these projects happen. Um, and kind of how they happen, and the con basically, basically explaining why these projects happen, you know, as a means of, like I said, community, creating community landmarks and landmarks for these communities, um, especially communities that don't have any landmarks, right? They don't have any, anything to identify them with landmarks, especially, um, you know, starting off in the city of Chicago, right? Where it's like there are neighborhoods in the city of Chicago don't have that, but then once you go into the business of producing public art, which is a whole other level, then you realize, you know, there are entire towns and other entire cities in rural America that don't have anything to. So on another level, there's actually an open market to be a public artist um, in America. You know, I can at least speak for the United States right there and within my travels. 
you know, because because um, let's just say a while ago I had a I had a number of projects that I've done in um, South Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You know, that they, they had little to no mural scene, public art scene when I got there, and like after a few years of going back and forth down there, it was created. You know, so like um, and there there are many of um other cities like that popping up with their own public art scene as as a way of defining their community. So therefore, we drive through these neighborhoods. You just don't like you just don't see um you know you don't, it doesn't feel like you're about to get assaulted or feel like you're going to have a bad day or something like that, right? You should be able to see something that's more inspiring. So yeah, that's kind of the bigger part of my angle. It, it's I think that's what they call what what is referred to as placemaking art. Yeah. And that is an excellent thing. We we have utilized a bit of that, uh, I think, uh, on the in the area that where the museum is, the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum is located. But exactly. we 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 did that I think 15 years ago, and uh, it was interesting to see the response for the community and it was a little rough around the edges particularly on the north end of what is now the Pullman National Monument but what was interesting is that the mural was there it was very colorful uh, it was beautiful very well done and all of the years that it was there there was not a crayon mark not one iota of graffiti that was affixed on that and so people and I hear what you're saying people you know the the people who live there it's almost as if when you show them you care enough to care about them then they respond in kind and so no one ever came and said thank you for doing the mural but the sheer fact that no one ever put a mark on it, spoke volumes and said how they felt about it. And clearly the message went out not to do it to whoever the <laughs> people were because no one ever did. And so it is very meaningful, the work that you do with those murals. And, and just, I, I don't know if, if you've had the kind of feedback to let you know personally that what you have done means something, but it does. It absolutely does. And you you can, sometimes you can get the message or receive a message that's nonverbal. And right. so, but it takes a thought, a person who has uh, the insight or the soul, kind of soul that you have that thinks, thinks enough about it, the work to understand the potential and the impact. And so, you know, we are grateful and I'm sure that many, many people are. And I guess I just want to ask the question, uh, but you, you may have answered it. When, when you start a project that way, when you go in and launch a, the idea of a project, are, do, do you think about what the community needs or what you think that you can contribute that will react or respond to that need? Um, so, like that, excuse me. Um, that, that um, attribute varies um, per community. So some communities 
It could be as simple as finding out what they don't want to see, right? What may offend them. And you work within the parameters outside of points A and B, which, you know, let's say they may not want to see um, triangles and squares on the wall. So you create everything else outside of those two parameters right there. There's some areas where that may be a, maybe a, a variable, right? But then there are other areas where you have um, complex social like social, social and social economic, economic issues where, you know, just um, a pretty picture on the wall um, may not be what, they want, what, what these students really need to see, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and sometimes, um, you know, some areas require um, to do pieces that promotes ideas of self-reflection. You know, um, some, some, some areas requires concepts uh, of, of art that just uh, that this this that, that just um, promotes the idea of creative and constructive thinking, right there. It's internal thing is you know um, like a, like different ways of uh, creative self reflection, right there. Um, so like so for instance, like the Pullman project um, took more than that, right? Like I actually did um, work with the Pullman Historic Society um, to do um, research. I do in-depth research on like the the history of Pullman and um and and, and like the, the the values of the community of Pullman. Now keep in mind the project I'm doing right now off of 111th and Cottage Grove is uh, from my understanding is like the first of a series of murals that's supposed to happen on that corridor of Viaducts off of Cottage Grove. So um therefore um, it made sense uh, to me to actually create a um piece that paid homage. Um, to, to technically tourist, a tourist piece, right? That paid homage to the Pullman culture and all, but something that worked within context to, 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 to the historic Pullman Museum that's directly across the street from the mural. So therefore, when you get off the train, when you get off the metro train in that area, when you get off at the, the train stop, you know exactly where you're at, right? And that the mural itself could, actually kind of leads you um, or supposed to lead you into the direction of the, of the museum. So that way you know you're in the right place. Um, yeah, that way the, the, the artwork, you know, it's, it's kind of like a place marker, so that you know that you're in the right place, right? And you're going in the right direction. Um, but then um, I had another project recently that um, I just completed that was um, in Denver um, on, the, on, the, on, the, on this community center called, no, it was an art facility called the Red Line, right? And the Red Line art facility was in, um, it, it, let's just say it's in, in, in Denver's um, neighborhood where it's, um, there are a lot of immigrants that stay in this neighborhood. Um, and, and a lot of um, a lot of uh, homeless shelters in this neighborhood. Um, so basically, they wanted to see something that represented people of color, and it felt re- very cultural. But they didn't want to see an anti-Trump mural, right? So like, so still within within you know the parameters of doing stuff that of doing something that represents people of color, that's a, that's a wide uh, a wide um, avenue to pick from on a creative level, right? I mean, if you just you know just excluding political content, just the culture of people, just the culture of people of color, that's a lot to choose from. So I was still able to produce a mural just off of that. Um, to me, as a public artist, context is everything, right? Like context, yes. Like just having yes. the right images in the right place is everything, you know. Like so, it goes context first, um, quality. Um, First two, but or, or second, your context first, quality second, um, literal message um, third, right? Like just overall what the mural is saying, 
right? But, but how bold is it saying, right? Um, and not only how bold is it saying, saying, also another variable um, to be considered when you're producing murals is the viewing, is the viewability, the, like the, the viewing aspect, meaning that if, are you doing a mural where more people are going to walk past it or drive past it, right? That makes a huge difference in regards to the scale of the images you put on the wall, right? So in other words, mm-hmm. if you're doing a mural in an area by an expressway, it makes sense to do giant, bold images with um, high contrast colors, you know, and bold graphics right there. Because you're creating something for people to notice in their peripheral vision or sitting in a passenger seat. If you're creating a mural in some subway tunnel or something like that, or some corridor where thousands of people are going to walk past, then it reverses. Then you have to create pieces that's intricate in detail because people are going to walk up on it, like on a regular basis, right? Like, you know, on a regular basis, and they're going to look for the details, or even they're not looking for the detail, there are going to be thousands of the same people who are going to walk past the same area and, 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 and notice stuff on a, on a regular basis. You know, so like, and, that's, and that goes back to that contact thing also, and considering who's viewing your mural and, and how they're going to view it. You know, um, the, other, the other wild thing that, that's, that's been happening is of the influence of uh, social media with um, street art and um, public art, uh, meaning that, um, like, people, people follow street art and public art on social media. Like, that actually helps um, give me a lot of um, national and international projects right there, right? Like, um, almost to the extent of um, social media itself being um, the poor man's um, PR firm, if you will. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> another, another huge factor of um, public art and street art and of the aspect of tourism this is going to bring us full circle in this conversation is, um, you know, you know, like, um, how do I put it? No one thing is all good or all bad in life. We, we, we know this, right? Within the age of yes, yes, yes. Um, no one thing is all good or all bad, right? So, like, there, are, there are shady, like, like there are a lot of good sides and productive sides to street art and public art. There are some sides that are relatively shady, right? That are on the professional level. Um, I, I, I'll go ahead and, and make statements about it on record, you know, and I'll make the same statement five years later. Um, for one. All right, and this is, this is where it gets very great at. Um, the rise of new street art and public art um, is usually a sign of, um, of um, incoming um, change, like drastic change in the neighborhood, sometimes gentrification, sometimes better management, right? Kind of hard to sell at first. Um, based off the popularity of street art and public art, um, those landmarks itself have raised property value. Um, in the instance um, of Wynwood, Miami, Wynwood, Miami, Florida, right? Um, the store uh-huh. behind Wynwood, Miami, Florida, is um, that's the area where people go to during, a, during a, the, the, the week of Art Basel, Miami, or Art Miami, to look at all the graffiti art and the street art, right? Now, they've been doing this for about like uh, maybe 10 or 12 years now, right? Now, from my understanding, after talking to a number of locals, Wynwood used to be like one of the shady parts of Miami, um, that was very industrial, had a lot of warehouses, a number of missions, a lot of homeless people, right? When was between um, Little Haiti and, and Overtown, right? Both neighborhoods of people of color, right? So, like, 
Moonwood is not Miami Beach. It's not Palm Miami Beach, right? Miami Beach is a tourist Miami. Miami Beach is an area where you think of Miami, you think of Miami Beach, right? When you think of Miami, you don't think of Wynwood, period, right? All right. right. So right. As, um, as Art Basel was happening and these people were going driving from Miami Beach to Wynwood to see these, uh, these street art and graffiti walls, um, galleries began to notice that there was a large crowd of people going over there to explore this area. Therefore, art galleries began to set up shop in Wynwood, right? A few years <laughs> later of this, um, you've got your art galleries, your cafes being to pop up. Then now you have these high-rise luxury condos <laughs> that's coming through. So something that was once like an underground gym is now is now going mainstream. And now Wynwood is almost like a, another Hyde Park or something like that. You know, like like a I don't yes. know, I'm not trying to throw yes. a Hyde Park, but Wynwood, Wynwood now is the same Wynwood as it was 10 to 15 years ago. Like 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 period, right? So in, in that instance, um, the street art and graffiti art raise their property value. Right, like I'm not, I'm not gonna go, you know, far left or far right, right, and say how good or how bad it it is, but like an abundance of street art can actually, um, can, can, like can actually increase the foot traffic, um, in a neighborhood right there and make your area increase tourism, period, right? Like so, so. But the thing is, the reason why I worked in Wynwood though, and what Chicago needs to follow is that, all right, um, there, there, there has to be a place. In regards to curating public art and street art, where like either you're gonna either you're gonna have some of it where you have to go through a bureaucratic process, you know, which is uh, having an owner review your design, get okay from okay from community, or you have to have some air, or you have to have have to have a number of walls where there isn't any of that. You know, you just invite an artist out to paint and let them know what not to do right there. Therefore, you have more projects going up at once at the same time. Like that's that that that's very impactful right there. And that's actually the standard of doing a street art and public art um, in, in, in these neighborhoods right there, as far as like how to transform them. Because um, if you go to Linwood within that area, they're like um, they're, they're gonna mess around and be like uh, five or ten murals on one block within a within a, every block within a one mile radius, right? Like Linwood is that dense with um with, with with murals and street art right there. Right, and there are a few more areas around the United States that's popping up. That's happening like that. Um, Denver is doing a lot of that. Um, Chicago is trying, but we, we got to try harder. I love you, Chicago, but we, we got we got to do better on a professional level. <laughs> um, you know, seriously, like yeah, because there seems to be like a, a there seems to be um a high level of nepotism that I noticed that happens with um with some of these projects. You know, um, that we're that we're going to rename nameless on, but seem like a number of people to get um get recruited from these projects. And you know what? It will, you know, this one, I'll take that back. The nepotism isn't alone to Chicago. That's the art world, man. That's just the way the art world works. You know, like, I've been on the witness side of nepotism a number of times to where there are certain projects that I've been a part of that I wouldn't have been selected for the project unless I wasn't really good friends or made friends with the right people right there. Right? So that's mm -hmm. kind of a part of um, playing a game. Um, the other variable um, to street art that people don't know is um, there's like something that's happening now or it's been happening where pretty much galleries use street art to promote their artists and promote their galleries. And they use the same gallery tactics they normally use in a gallery to bring into the street art and graffiti world. And they kind of don't mix. It's kind of not the same thing, right? So like there's been an ongoing conversation in regards to What's the definition and what's the difference between street art 
and graffiti art, right? And the truth is, there are a lot of huge differences. A lot of huge differences. All right, for one, um, graffiti is very non-apologetic, right? A graffiti writer will vandalize anything, right? You know, if it's a blank wall, uh, everyone's going to see, someone's going to write on it, right? Period. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the other variable of, um, that makes graffiti not street art is um, the legal ramifications. So in other words, it's graffiti when it's illegal, period, right? Like, in, in other words, I write on your wall, you don't give me permission for it, you call the police on me, that's graffiti right there, right? Street art, right. on the other hand, it is me calling you up and we talk. But, hey, you know, I want to paint your wall. Like, yeah, you want to paint my wall? I right, go ahead, paint my wall. Here's some money for it. You know, let me set you up. That's the way street art works right there. That's two different things right there. But it's, it's, it's almost like a WWF wrestling versus UFC. One of them looks very entertaining. <laughs> the other one, someone get killed in. That's how much of a drastic difference it is. Where people see that, where, where, where people get, get, get too confused that if you associate anyone that uses a spray can to do art as doing graffiti, that's a fallacy, right? Because a spray can, especially with spray paint, has actually evolved to, spray paint has, has evolved to a legitimate art tool that you could buy in an art store or a Michaels or something like that. And you can actually make art with. Like, in, in, in other words, uh, it's no longer just, just the, 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 the compressed aerosol paint. You give them the hardware store. Now there's specialty spray paint made for you to do art with. You, you see what I'm saying? So, like, um, the other variable that um, also separates graffiti from street art is that um, a lot of um, people's favorite street artists design the pieces but really don't care to paint walls for sport like that. They'll rather work in the studio. You know, like, a, a number of street artists I've seen do that, right? I come from a graffiti background. I like to paint walls for sport. What I mean by that is, I paint walls like uh, guys go fishing on the weekend, right? Either way it goes, uh, every weekend I'm somewhere painting for some money or for no money. I'm, I'm out here painting. That's how I'm having 450 murals under my belt, right? Within the let me let period. me say this to you: what you're on a roll, and I just want to catch you in midstream. There, I yeah. would like yeah. very much. For to be able to communicate with you on any further murals that you do that you plan to do in Pullman because you know the racial mix that's there most people don't and so it is imperative that there is a mural of that the within the composition there includes people of color on the yes. north end for all of those children who are getting out of those that's where all the schools are who are yes. walking past that, going to the bus, you yes. know, getting on the train. So I just wanted to share that with you because it's important. Um, and we can have a conversation offline about that. But I do really, really, really want to be able to do that. And I yeah. just got a, a a note from my engineer. We're almost out of time. We have 60 <laughs> seconds. I'm sorry I to be thank you. I, no, no, no. I thank you so much for being our guest today. I thank you for giving part of your Sunday to join us. And all I can say is everybody, join me in thanking and welcoming our guest today, Ramon Static, and we hope that you will come again. We're going to invite you to come again. And okay, we just need to do a quick wrap up. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. You're welcome. You're all welcome. right. Thank you. It's definitely good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care.
Everybody, thank you for sharing with us another informative show on the ever-expanding topic of tourism. Thank you to the listening audience for spending part of your Sunday with us. And a very special thank you to the Pullman Messenger Magazine, United Auto Workers Local 551, and Chew Chicago. Thank you to our fantastic engineer, Mr. Don Newsom, smooth jazz artist Jonathan Fritzen for allowing us to use his music on our show every week. And last but not least, you, the listening audience, because without you, there would be no show. And we'll see you next time on Live from the Pullman National Monument. Live from Pullman National Monument was brought to you by Hughes-Peterson Publishing in Chicago, Illinois. Hosted by Dr. Lynn Hughes.